You're listening to the Activities Strong Executive Edition series on the Bridge the Gap Network. The live webinar series aims to promote, engage, and empower wellness directors and senior living executives to continue the conversation surrounding health and wellness in aging adults. This series is powered by Linked Senior. Welcome to today's Activity Strong Executive Edition webinar. My name is Megan McMahon, and I am the Director of Strategic Development here at Link Senior. For today's webinar, we are providing one free NAV, NCAP, NCCDP, NCTRC, and NZSRDT CEU credit. To be eligible for the CEU credits, you do need to remain on this webinar for the full hour. At the end of the webinar, I will provide the required post-webinar CEU survey evaluation link right in the webinar room chat box. And I will also send you that CEU survey link by email this afternoon. So please be sure to check your spam folder in case it lands there. This CEU survey must be completed by midnight Eastern time this Thursday. If you have any questions, please email us at webinars at linksenior.com. CEU certificates will be issued by email before the end of the day on Friday, February 4th. I will now hand it over to Charles DeVilmorn, CEO and co-founder of Link Senior. Charles? Thank you so much, Megan. Welcome, everyone. Um, welcome to today's Activity Strong Executive Edition webinar. I, as always, I'm super excited to be here with you. I think there's two higher reasons today why I'm excited. One is the topic, and obviously this is a very, very important topic, is the staffing crisis. So today's webinar is about solving the labor crisis, creating a better culture to attract and keep frontline talent. And the uh, second reason I'm so excited about today's webinar is our esteemed, very valuable, fantastic, awesome, amazing speakers. So we have James Lee, uh, co-founder and CEO of Better Groves and Charles Turner, who's the CEO of CARE. So as a quick reminder, Activity Strong, you know, this executive edition is all about trying to invite our quote-unquote executives in this discussion about the all-importance of activities and life enrichment and programming. A little bit of background on who we are. So I am Charles Vilmerin, the CEO and co-founder of Link Senior. I started Link Senior 15 years ago now, actually. And uh, with two sets of profound values. One is the fact that, quote unquote, old people are cool. So this idea that we don't want to segregate on anything, even age. And obviously the second thing, the reason why we're all here today is to empower, acknowledge, and educate activity and life enrichment professionals. So this platform called Activity Strong is in partnership with Activity Connection, NAP, and NCAP. And as a quick reminder, our work at Link Senior is to help you engage all of your residents, regardless of the preferences, where we stand physically and cognitively, and we have demonstrated outcomes in the form of a clinical study that was published a couple years ago. So today's presentation, um, exciting, as I said, in many regards. I think that the best way to connect it to activities and life enrichment and programming is the fact that when we define engagement, we should never forget that it is about creating this collaboration with the elders that we serve, right? So if you ask any activity professional or any life enrichment professional, what is the quote-unquote why, right? Um, most of you, if not all of you, respond that you show up at work because you want to engage elders and, again, collaborate so they can find purpose every day. So that's my quick word of introduction for um, today's presentation. I'd love to introduce you both, to, I'd, like to, I'd love to introduce you to both of our, again, amazing and awesome speaker. And I'll start with James. So James, first of all, thank you so much for coming back. As a reminder, Happy to um, be back. everyone, go ahead, James. Happy to be back. Yeah, exactly. Uh, James um, was with us back in, I think, January, James, right? January 2021? One year ago. Exactly, one year ago. And, <clears throat> you know, James, for me, I like the fact that you're, quote-unquote, one of us, right? You, you started oh, yeah. as an activity professional, I remember. 
That's right. Yeah. It's uh, and I still describe it as the the hardest job I've had in senior living, and I still hold to that. Fantastic. Mm. And um, and obviously our second speaker, who has an amazing first name, Charles Turner. Yep. Yeah. And I've had the pleasure of meeting Charles years ago, and um, in a way considered Charles a friend, but sometimes beyond a friend, also kind of a mentor, where Charles, uh, before starting this fantastic organization called CARE, uh, also uh, worked in senior living, owning and operating uh, different types of buildings. So with that and a quick introduction, I would also share the fact that James and Charles both have a, have a fantastic uh, Point of common, which is that they live and work in Texas. And with that, I'll let you both start today's presentation. And thank you again for joining. Charles, it's yours. Awesome. Um, great. Yeah, thanks. Um, that was uh, an unnecessary and mostly untrue introduction, at least for me. James is agreed. You, know, you can go on a lot more about James than me, but. Um, yeah, my, my background, I just a little bit more about, you know, I, I, I have been, still am actually, an, an owner and operator of buildings uh, kind of all over the Sun Belt. Um, before that kind of a background in technology, I can't say I'm a technical person at all. Um, but in 2019, a bunch of folks in the industry, industry leaders said, hey, we need to get together and solve this labor problem. Um, we're studying some, what others were doing in the acute care space, but realizing those solutions would never scale for us. And so that's where we created CARE, um, CARE with a K. Um, and it's, why is it CARE with a K? There's no reason. We just we wanted to be obnoxious. And, and those of y'all who know me know I just, I, I thrive in being obnoxious um, and immature for being almost 48 years old. Um, but it's been, you know, we've, we've helped a lot of, of communities. We're probably in 20, Two states will be in all 50 states by the middle of this year, um, hopefully. Um, helping fill open shifts, uh, you know, way less than a staffing agency, way less than paying overtime, things like that. So, um, and because of that, uh, we have tens of thousands of folks that work on our platform. And I say folks, meaning frontline caregivers, nurses, you know, CNAs, med techs, LPN, LDNs, RNs, um, and, and some hospitality workers in some states. Uh, we have a rich it's called a database of people to, to ping and ask questions of. Um, you know, a lot of times you see workforce surveys and and, and we ask uh, the facilities what they think they're doing right. Um, but it's really hard to ask, how do you get a whole bunch of frontline workers um, and, and ask them uh, what they think? And so that's where James and I, I came up with, with this study. Basically asking questions, okay, we ask the facilities or communities and we ask uh, the frontline workers the exact same questions, like, why do you want to work for a community? Why, why do you not? Why do you come and why do you go? And see where they agreed and where they disagreed. Um, a lot of this was co commissioned by uh, the Texas Assisted Living Association. And, you know, James and I are both in Texas. We sit on some committees there. But it's kind of taken on a life of its own with the study. Um, we've been working with Argenta, we're working with ACA, we've been working with a lot of organizations. And we're, we're actually in the process of adding more, like, kind of a there's a lot of questions like we got a great responses, but some, sometimes James and I are like, well, why did they answer that way? And we kind of had a double click uh, down on some of these questions. So you're going to go, you know, everybody loves it when we, we talk for an hour and we just present charts and graphs. Well, mm -hmm. we take a good nap. So I hope we won't uh, put everybody to sleep. But uh, James, I don't know if you have any, any more color on, on the origin of this and, and more about Fairwise and Bella Groves. Yeah, no, no the, the origin is good. Um, I'll, I'll just uh, repeat a little bit of what um, original Charles said. And uh, that's I, I come from an activities background. So I was a caregiver first and then an activities director after that. So this study is very, very personal to me, the results that came through. And the main question we have today and the reason all of you are on this today is, what does this have to do with activities? So we're, we're gonna try to answer that, not just from Charles Turner and, and, and I's perspective, but also inviting you. I, I do recall last time I was on this that it was the fastest, like most active chat session I've ever seen. So I'm expecting more of that out of this group. But that is the central question. We're gonna present a lot of data, well, some data and some kind of commentary around what we've, think are some big takeaways from the study, but I challenge this group to make it relevant to your profession activities and let's kind of get there together. 
Um, and so I guess without further ado, um, and my stupid joke I always have to make is, why do we always say without further ado? And what if someone wants more ado? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't know what ado is, to be honest with you. Um, but apparently we want less of it in our lives. Um, Okay, I'm going to share. Let me know. I, I struggle sometimes with this. Uh, can you all see my screen? Uh, let me do that. Click on point, point and click. Yep. All right, yeah, what are y'all seeing? There we go. All right, we're good. Um, and I've tried to turn off my Slack notifications, but my company's relentless on Slack. And so I, I they're still popping up. So hopefully nothing's embarrassing. Um, but you, then you get to see how the sausage just made it here. Um, so let's talk about, we talked a little bit about the, the nature of, of the study um, and, and, and the why behind it. And we wanted to dispel, um, we want to see if there are any myths we need to dispel. And look, as an operator, um, my, you know, as a Fort Worth recovering operator, for me, culture was paramount, right? And, and we've got to build the right culture. One of the things that I'll speak for myself is that, um, one of the big outcomes of the study, um, and, and we cross-referenced this with some other folks like uh, best places to work and things like that. We, we, it turns out the conversation around culture, um, at least as we define it as an industry is, is I'm gonna say this and just make people mad, but it's, it's generally a colossal waste of time. We're gonna go through that in a little bit. Now, there's some caveats to that, but what I think I always conceived of as culture and what, why we couldn't get what I wanted to do as a company down to that frontline workforce, just kind of un- un- unpack some of that. Uh, we'll get to that at the end, but um, there, there are some pre- preconceived notions. Now, the first thing we're gonna do, we're gonna actually talk about a little bit of the good news, right? Um, a lot of the things that we've been assuming as an industry, gosh, we just can't pay the same as an Amazon or a Walmart or, 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 or what have you. Um, and so we asked these questions to our frontline workforce. And we asked, you know, are you, if, if they were going to pay you 20% more on Amazon or Walmart or, or something outside of our industry was going to pay 20% more, um, would you leave? And, and the interesting thing that this data shows is that by and large, no, they, they, they don't. They don't want to leave. Um, James made a really, it always makes a really good point when we go through this, is that he says, you know, they don't, they, they, they don't want to leave. They want to stay where they are. They just want to be paid fairly to do that. Now, we can debate what fairly means, and, and we're not labor economists, um, but, um, but they want to be paid fairly. So the reason is, something that's not inherent in this, but we do a lot of research and studying sort of the, the psychological aspects of, of a frontline caregiver. One of the things that someone, uh, we had a, a PhD industrial psychologist several years ago said to me, he said, Charles, what you have to understand about a frontline, the, 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 the general psychological makeup of a frontline worker in senior care is almost identical to the psychological makeup of a drug addict. And at first I got very like violently like reactive to that strongly because I thought that was very insulting. He's like, no, 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 I'm not saying they're drug addicts. But he says, if you look at what a drug addict does, a drug addict uses not to feel high, but really to feel normal or to feel, uh, I guess, reinforced. And he says, if you look at the front, the, the, a lot of our frontline workforce, he says, a lot of them may have, may, maybe they have poor life skills, or maybe they struggle uh, with things at home that are out of their control. But he says, the, the t- when they are in front of a senior and they're providing care, they get a dopamine hit. And that's very, very profound for them. So when they get that dopamine hit, they, you know, again, call it not a high, because that's insulting, but they actually feel reinforced. The one time in their life, they feel reinforced, right? It's not how they react to each other, how, how they interact with their peers and their management. It's how they react to that senior. And so when you start to understand the, the psychological makeup of a frontline workforce, it starts to redefine culture. But that's why they want to stay in this industry. They can't get that same dopamine hit, quote unquote, by working in a Walmart. Um, and we see this a lot, people, we, you know, in care, we have people that work on our platform, maybe part-time and they work at a retail or whatever, but they always come back to senior care. Like their mind, this is what, this is what, how I identify, this is, 
Um, this is where I, I, I go to. So I, I thought this is interesting. It's a little more optimistic than we're probably seeing that people actually, by and large, want to say, say in this workforce. Mm-hmm. James, I don't know if you know. Any yeah, color um, you know, the, the, the big picture of our study was really to question, um, do we have different perceptions on the problem? And I, I think, well, you know, all of us can just kind of intuitively say, yeah, we're owners and caregivers are looking at the problem differently. But what we wanted to do was put some data and substance behind that. So if uh, in our study, in our actual paper that we wrote, uh, we, we characterized this as if the um, results of the owners were a person, what would that person think or feel about caregivers? And so like this slide tells you 80% of the uh, kind of leadership believe that, hey, yeah, uh, if, if somebody else offered 20% more pay, we're going to lose all our caregivers. So if you have that mentality about your workforce, that um, while pay is certainly important, if owners believe there's nothing we can do, if, if others pay more, we just simply are going to lose the caregiver kind of workforce issue. Um, but if you look at that compared to what caregivers actually told us, 50% of them agreed, but that's still a 30% discrepancy. And to me, the most telling part about what you see on the screen here is that big orange line on the right-hand side of your screen, that nearly 30% of people unequivocally said, even if they paid more, I strongly disagree that I'm going to leave senior living. So the upcoming slide is also going to question another assumption that I think owners and leaders have, which is you know, well, because of COVID, everyone, all the caregivers are rethinking being in our industry in the first place. So clearly you see a, a even more contrast than the first question. So I think what this did for us, for Charles and I, when, when we looked at this was, first of all, we need to share this with other, pe- with other people, that our assumptions are just wrong. And um, earlier, Charles said, we need to double click and kind of dig to the second level question which is where we want to go. But um, I think if we're going to change a problem, we have to question, are we looking at the problem the right way? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, you know, this, this data also reinforces a lot of stuff. There are other studies that say, you know, okay, let's just kind of, let, let's talk about the order of magnitude of what we call mm-hmm. the workforce problem, right? Um, and, and uh, pre pre COVID, there was estimated. Well, it was estimated like by 2030, there is going to be a, a, a shortage of like 150 some odd thousand, and then by 2040s, uh, maybe like twice 300 thousand or something like that. But the problem with that study was that it was only the incremental. Like it took like how many workers do we have now, and then how many more do we need? Kind of with the silver tsunami. What it did not take into account was the folks that are leaving. We'll be leaving the workforce, just retirement, aging out, et cetera. So the number is really more, I call it around 2 million. That was pre-COVID. Okay, so over the next 10, 15 years, we, we need to find 2 million people to replace and add to the workforce we have. Now, COVID hit, and best estimates say that about 15% of our frontline workforce has just left. They just they categorically walked away from the industry. Okay, so we have a labor crisis. It's here to stay. But we have some, but we have a foundation to build on, right? And it is that once people are here and they're in the industry and they're providing care and they're getting that quote unquote dopamine hit, they want to stay, by and large want to stay, right? Um, I think we're weeding out people that may, may not want to be here and we're keeping the ones that really want to stay. So that's we have something we have foundational. So we have to kind of sell ourselves of, you know, if you have a big heart and you want to care for seniors, we we have the opportunity for you. And there are more people out there that may never have, have considered senior care. Yeah. Yeah, caregivers have basically told us this era, this COVID time has made us double down on, we see ourselves in this industry, we wanna be in this industry and we see ourselves in this industry for the long term. So um, I know that I know how much that probably contrasts with what people are feeling, you know, executive directors, other people, on the line right now who are thinking, well, that doesn't sound real at our community because we can't find caregivers to come work here. But, um, but think about how often we go and survey actual caregivers. And that's the goal here. That's the purpose of studies like this is let's actually go ask caregivers what they think. And then what can we do about that? This reinforces it, right? So we asked, we asked the communities and we asked the caregivers the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and 
and the you know, and I think the facility response, they're feeling the pain, right? They're feeling that 15% that walked off. So I think they're, they're you know, when you, when you look at an aggregate, like I need people and therefore I'm going to take that and apply it macro across my workforce. That's a little more pessimistic than when you ask each individual caregiver where like, you know what, I don't think it's as bad. I mean, it's bad. Let's not, let's, let's not sugarcoat it, but it's not categorically as bad um, as, as we think. Um, you know, we're asking the question five years from now, will you be in care? You know, one of the things like James and I talk about kind of double click, we're actually about to roll out a, a, a kind of a follow-up to this question. Uh, because now you have to understand these questions were asked pre-Omicron, you know, they're post-vaccines, kind of pre-vaccine mandates. Um, and, and, and so it, it, there's been some age, there's been a few months since it's been done. So we're gonna now ask, okay, now because of Omicron, now because of COVID, uh, vaccine mandates, um, are these numbers changing at all? And, 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 and also with like PPE requirement, OSHA requirements and all these things, the regulations that are coming, that, that are here or, or are coming, the frontline workers say, you know what, I'm just getting tired of this. It, it, it's just go, this is going on and on and on, I, I'm, I'm leaving. Right, we're, gonna, we're asking those questions. We don't know the answers to that yet, but um, we'll see. And hopefully we can kind of report back what the responses to that. Yeah. You know, in the, the last time I was here uh, with this audience, I, I'm trying to recall, I think the title of the, the presentation was that um, activities is the secret sauce of senior living. And I believe that. And the basic premise of that was that um, our industry, for the most part, uh, treats activities as like a secondary offering at the community. And that the care is the most important thing that we do. Um, but you know, my contention is, as I'm sure everyone on this call would probably agree, care is the means to the end. You do the care so that you can have a lifestyle. So, you know, so they're not apart from one another. One helps to get to the other. And so the bigger picture as I see it is, what is life enrichment activities, whatever word we choose to use to encompass that, how, how do we get people in our industry to kind of move towards that. So the underlying question there is how do caregiver, how do caregivers feel like activities professionals? I think that, I think that is a central premise. The, the earlier part of this presentation is questioning whether or not caregivers are motivated by the same things that we think they're motivated by. So if we take this as truth, if we accept this as truth, that, re, that caregivers want to stay in our industry, they um, haven't been, uh, uh, they haven't been negatively impacted by COVID to think, no, I'm getting out of here and they want to stick around. Now the big question is how do we keep them around in a way they feel like they're doing more than care, that they actually feel like part of an activities culture. Yeah, um, uh, yeah and I, by the way, I can't see the chat group or the Q&A, so... Um, Charles DeVee, if, you, if you've got anything in there. <laughs> French uh, Charles, we call you know, it. Yeah, you can call me French Charles, but I, I did like when you call me the original Charles. I, <laughs> I, I really like that. So That's bad. I'm, I'm, do that again. I'm older. I'm older. I'm the OG. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the OC. No, um, no, so, so obviously in the chat, there's a lot going on, which is great. Please keep it up. You know, I, I would be lying to say that it's all kind of uh, 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 rosy. There's a lot of people painting a kind of dim picture. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. you say dim. Um, but I think there's, there's two main things that are coming, which is one, obviously, James, we love uh, what you're referring to when it comes to the secret source. Some people were questioning, and maybe this is a question for both of you in terms of the data. Um, you know, did you, did you include people that had left? the industry, right? Is this sample of data only for people that quote unquote stayed in, and therefore is the data a little bit skewed there? Or can you respond to that yeah. piece? Because I think it's important for, yeah. Um, so the answer to the question is a little bit, I mean, sort of. Um, these are people that are, are credentialed, not know they're credentialed. Um, yeah. And we know, again, a lot of it came from the data of the people that work on care. And a lot of people we know We've done, understand we've done other surveys. We, we actually, just, we've done some COVID, specifically COVID related surveys that reinforce yep. a lot of this data in terms of people leaving. But, but we still have, we, stick, we still survey the people, a lot of the people on, on our platform 
who may be either let's say that have left or frankly, let's call it more sitting on the sidelines. Um, so we do know there is yeah. a population. I, I, I can't honestly say who, you know, who and what, because those lines are not as binary as you think. People have left the industry, but gosh, they want to pick up a little bit, make it, you know, I work at, you know, fast food or I work at Walmart or whatever. I still want to make more, more in, extra income. So maybe I pick up a shift or two a week or so using the credential that I have. So you have a lot of that and, and I can pick and choose where I want. Cause like, oh, that, that's got COVID, that one doesn't have COVID. You know, so it's, it's, it is a, it's an easy question with a kind of an opaque answer. I apologize. Yeah, but we did also survey, we sent the survey to TALA members, so Assisted Living Association here in Texas sent out the survey to their own caregiving team. So there's a mix of responses here from people who are currently in assisted living, this kind of middle ground that Charles talked about, and people who have, uh, who are in senior living, but through organizations like CARE. Correct. Okay, so thanks so, for saying um, that. So just 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 one thing if you don't mind so in the chat there was a lot of people kind of asking these questions but specifically kayleen and martina so just to be clear this study i think what charles is saying is that yes it's we're not grabbing everybody but we are grabbing some of the people that have quote-unquote left so the data might be stronger than we were originally talking about in in the chat so thank you very much for validating yes that that is correct and again we have this other COVID study we're asking people that you know have you left the industry yeah uh, which is not reflected in this numbers but you can go to our website like do you care.com with a k go to where like i don't know like news or something like that and you can download that one for free um you see a lot of those trends and we're actually uh, we've got long story with that study we asked caregivers basically the exact same question starting in like April of 2020, and then three other times um, kind of throughout the pandemic to see how attitudes are changing, and then we're about to update it again. Okay. Um, all right, yeah, because we're, yeah, we're, this is a good, good set of questions. We're hitting kind of a, a separate, a kind of a, we're shifting gears now to a different set uh, of data. Um, so if there are any other questions on that, you know, please let us know and, and the questions on this. So this, you know, the way you read these, these, these next couple of slides, they, you, you almost like read them right to left, not left to right. Um, and, and this is where we were trying to expose where there are disconnects between what the, the communities think workers want and what workers actually want. And remember, and so that, and just to clarify the nature of the questions, when we ask communities, we didn't say, hey, why do you think workers come or workers go? That wasn't the question. The question was, why, do, why does a worker come to work for you or why have they left you? So it made it very personal and we can get, it, the, the questions become a lot less abstract and more about that, you know, call it administrator, um, um, not just about the industry itself. So you, know, you can see these are where things we see points of disconnect. Pay rate, you know, why do people come? Okay, number one is pay rate. That's not a big surprise at all. But then we start getting into things that we can, that are a, a lot, you know, there's a lot of disconnect. Um, with things that one, do surprise us and some things that don't. So for instance, um, we know flexibility and, and workforce um, is is a big big deal. Um, you know that's why it was like, how do you guys recruit on your platform? In a weird way, it's not as hard as you think because what we do is we provide ultimate flexibility. The vast majority of our people have a full time job in a community. They just use us to pick up extra income here and there. Like they pick up, I like think our average active hero, everybody on our platform is a hero. They may pick up like a shift, shift and a half a week, right? So it's not a full-time job for them. It's something they do on the side to make extra income with that credential. But they love it because we're ultimately flexible. Um, you know, this is what, some of the things, I go back to my operating days and my my, my vice president of, of clinical, who's wonderful and she's still a dear friend. And I, I asked her, I said, okay, explain to me why all of our shifts are six to two, two to 10 and, and 10 to six. And the response is like, well, that's when all the, the residents wake up. That's when, you know, eight hours happens. I was like, well, okay, can we look, just because that's what, are the, are the residents waking up because that's when they wake up or are they waking up because that's when we wake them up? And, and that's when we do breakfast. And I said, well, let's look at the data. We actually took our nurse call data, that's sort of a surrogate for actual activity and realized that it's not as clean as that. So, okay, what if you actually staggered your shifts and your onboarding 
so that maybe you actually have gaps where you're like, you don't, we only need someone for four hours or maybe you need someone for 12 hours. So you provide um, a broader array of shift types where your workforce uh, can pick up shifts that are a little more flexible through their work and not the six to two, two to 10, 10 to, 10 to 10 six. Um, yeah, food for thought, but uh, we never implemented anything. I kind of wish we did. It was too hard to move that battleship, but um, we did. But then there are other things like the, the one that always strikes me um, here is a big disconnect or the benefits because every uh, frontline worker is like, hey, I come to a building because of benefits and something and you'll see later, like they leave because of benefits. But then you ask them and we don't show the slide on here. You ask them, okay, would you forego, if we basically paid you uh, a, a dollar or two more, um, would you would you forego benefits? And like categorically the response was, yeah, absolutely, yes. I'd rather have a little bit higher pay and then benefits. So I think we struggle uh, a lot with articulating the value that benefits they're getting. And also I'm looking at what we're paying in wages. Like what if we just paid everybody's premium, like 100% premium? Or like, okay, you can get higher wage higher wage and no, uh, and, and you have to cover your own benefits or lower wage on 100% covered benefits, would we actually have a better retention? Again, that's food for thought. Um, other things on here, like, you know, uh, we see this over and over again, working with friends, it's not as big of a deal as we think it is. I think there's a big disconnect. I think they're like, you know, we don't really care about our coworkers. We care about management. We'll get to that in a second. But we don't really care about that. Um, and there's actually a heavier emphasis on how nice the facility is. But that surprised me. Um, they prefer, that's more of an emphasis than just, uh, than I think the, the communities thought as well. And James, I don't know if you had any further insights in some of these bullets. Yeah, you know, the one I look at, um, flexibility of work schedule, I know on the screen, it looks like 8.6 to 7.0 is not a big discrepancy. But if, if you look at it percentage-wise, it's, you know, 16% difference between what uh, caregivers said and what we owners and leaders thought. So I, I like to expand my thought on flexibility just from schedule to look at what, what caregivers value is flexibility. And so again, just my activities hat brings me back to this question of how is this relevant to activities professionals? I think about how do you, how do you infuse flexibility to caregivers in their role about how they want to serve residents. So one of the questions I've dealt with at every level of position in senior living is downtime for caregivers. And in a lot of activities, people will tell me, well, I would love caregivers to be involved in activities, but they're, they never have time. They have to run to do this and do that. And so one of the practical ways that our company, our operating company, Bella Groves, is trying to solve that is, um, yes, we're addressing pay, we're uh, addressing um, benefits. But beyond that, once people are there, they want to feel good about the work. So one of the things we've done is structure our caregiving ratios in, we are memory care, by the way, um, to a four to one ratio, meaning every four residents, there's going to be one caregiver. Um, so that means that we have built in downtime. We have, we have said that activities and programming is a critical part of your job and specific to memory care, you can't always plan it. You can't put it on a checklist. So we, the owners, have to structure the organization in a way that you can do that. So to me, that gets at flexibility. This result on the screen here, when it says flexibility of work schedule, doesn't just mean, can I work a different shift at different times? It also means, do I have flexibility in how I work within my shift. Do I have flexibility of um, not just running ragged for eight hours, but also incorporating downtime? You know, James, there's, there's one comment that's been coming up and you kind of alluded to that here, mm -hmm. which is, I think her name is Tara, Tara White. She was, um, Tara was saying that with uh, the pandemic and the staffing crisis, She's been poured in different departments, different disciplines like nursing and dining and transportation mm -hmm. and so on. And we're, we're hearing that all the time from activity professionals. So there's a joke saying, well, at least you got job security. But I think, I think mm -hmm. we could go beyond that and also recognize that this idea of the universal worker model, we've been trying to implement that for years. And mm -hmm. I'm hearing from you, James, that you've, as the owner of your organization, you're proactively implementing that in the form of a downtime. Is that kind of a good way of looking at it? 
Yeah, um, I would say, so, you know, what is a universal worker? I mean, what, what do we think a universal worker is? Most organizations probably make caregivers exclusive to ADLs. Your full-time mm-hmm. job, 99.9% .9 of your job should be assistance of daily yeah. living. So um, I think, you know, if you think about how many hours a day does a resident receive physical care, ADL support, um, a universal worker, if you just took <laughs> mathematically, you should take that proportion of time allotted for care. So let's say your resident gets uh, four hours of care, physical care a day. I'm doing math in real time. So one, one out of every six hours of their day is care related. So then, you know, the other part of it is, okay, well, how much of their time is in what we would categorize as activities? You know, I know it sounds lofty, but in an ideal world, you've got the same mix. So caregivers in a universal role should be allotted that time. Portion of the time equal to resident needs is care. Some of it's dining, some of it's programming. And there, there's a lot of things. So for our company, Bellet Groves, our caregivers are universal. They, they do the care, they do the programming, they do the meal service. The specialized roles like cooking or mm -hmm. housekeeping or maintenance, we've got people covered for that. But if it has to do with the, the quality of that resident's day, that's a universal mm -hmm. caregiver in my mind. Cool. As you were talking, uh, so a lot of people emphasized how much flexibility was important. Sorry, Charles. Okay. Yeah, I, I want to say one, um, there was a point I was going to get to before that question, and I just remembered it. You know, talking directly to the people who are on this um, webinar, more than me wanting you to take this particular study or this specific um, data back to your organization and doing something with it, I think an aha moment I'd, I'd love for people to have is go do your own research. Do your own study. You know, Charles and I, before this study, you know, only had just other references to, to kind of point at and say, hey, look, look at that study. And now that we did this study, it's prompted more questions and we're going to go to a second level study. So um, one of the points I made in the um, linked senior conversation a year ago, which I'll reiterate now, is take control of these problems, put them in your own hands, go get the data yourselves. So if you have questions and you're feeling frustrated about, um, you know, I'm asked to go do stuff as a lifestyles director, I've got to go do meals and do stuff, but I rarely get it back the other way, survey your own teams, right? I mean, obviously work with your executive director and kind of have a bigger picture in mind, but go get your own data. And I think if we do a better job of understanding our workforce, the teams that we report to every single day, that's the, that's the start of providing better solutions. And so Charles and I are trying to do that at a macro level here to, to help the industry, but you can do this exact thing for your 50 team members in your community, right? So um, that's one thing I, I really wanted to say during the course of this conversation is, this, this is one survey, but the bigger, but the bigger thing is um, find your own information, collect your own data so that you can be part of recommending solutions and not being perceived as complaining about the problem, right? That's, and, and we issued that challenge to ourselves too. Cool. So this next set is, is in a weird way, same set of questions asked negatively, right? Um, why have you left? Not why have you come, why have you left? Or specifically, remember, asking, we ask communities this, not why do people leave, but why have they left you? Mm -hmm. And so, and that's a very important distinction. So again, we kind of read these things from right to left. And sort of the things that kind of everyone agrees on, okay, low, low pay. Again, even the communities at this point are like, oh, no, no, we, we, we don't provide low, they're, they're relative to, the frontline workers, oh, we don't provide low pay. Yeah, they leave the low pay or we can't do it or we don't, you know, they just think it's a little de-emphasized for the community. The next two, disrespect for management and poor company facility culture. 
I want to pause on this because I think those two questions need to be taken sort of in aggregate. Because in my mind, they're actually they're the same question. Um, <clears throat> the disrespect for management again. Just to be clear, we didn't ask why do people leave facilities or communities. Why do they have left you? And and basically, in this one, the community said, well, we don't have a poor culture, or or, or, or I'm not disrespectful. And and the the frontline workers are going, oh no, you really really are. Um, and, and what and the reason I say it needs to be, I think, taking an aggregate with the next one of poor company and facility culture is because, you know, other research that we, we look at is how we'll talk about this in a second, how we define culture. It may be a little different. Um, and so if, if there's one thing to drill in on, if as a creating a culture, let's not talk so much about how we do fun things. Let's not confuse morale with culture um, and culture for the frontline worker is, do you respect me? Do you respect what I do? Um, and so that we, you know, that I can do my job and get my, again, cut a crew, but get my dopamine hit. Like don't get in the way of doing my dopamine hit, honor me for what I do, okay? So this is one where if, if, like, if I'm the head of HR, one of the first things I'm doing is I'm doing, I'm double clicking into this question. By the way, we actually are. We literally yesterday started formulating the, and the second level of that one question, because this, this is the one that has probably one of the biggest disconnects between mm -hmm. the community and our frontline heroes. Wh what does that mean when you, what does it mean when you say disrespect and which role in the community tends to be the, the most disrespectful? We have theories, but we, want, we don't want to talk about theory at this point. But that's where I said, okay, let's work on that interpersonal relationship. As soon as someone becomes a, if it's a supervisory problem, let's work on the supervisor. You know, let's figure out how that supervisor, what, what the dynamics that are created because of that. Um, the other thing is, you, know, we, you may think you have a good culture. Again, using our data to care, we, you know, the, our, our communities rate our heroes, but our heroes also rate our communities. If you ever want to see what you, you, what your culture is like on your knock shift, we've got the data. Um, it can be pretty interesting sometimes as a sidebar. Um, the lack of teamwork from coworkers. I'm going to drill into this one. Even though everyone's kind of in agreement, people leave because of lack of teamwork from coworkers. Let me tell you, from a from a management standpoint, again, I put I, I put my operator hat on, and what's not necessarily reflected in this data, but we do have other survey data that reflects this. Is we ask, I personally ask 150 frontline caregivers, CNAs, um, what is the number one thing that makes you mad when you go to work? Basically, trying to understand what what's a big demotivator for you. I would assume, I think everybody assumes, oh, lack of respect. Turns out that's actually number two. The number one response we got, almost verbatim from everybody, out of 150, about two thirds said the exact same thing. The number one thing that pisses me off when I go to work is when I, excuse my language, literally have to pick up the shit that the previous shift did not do. And so you think about that, like how would you like to come to work and realize, okay, I, I got my day planned down, my ADLs, I got to manage and the activities I got to do. Oh, wait, oh, stop. I got to, the previous shift didn't do their stuff, whether they did or didn't, it's up to debate. Well, here's one of the things that I always, I, I go back to my operating days and we you know, have a, an electronic health record system, just like everybody else does, right? I would challenge, I looked at, I looked at my data, my communities, that our best nurses and our lowest turnover were the ones where at the end of every shift, those ADLs were checked off in the system before the next shift started. This is a management problem. This is not a, a worker problem. It's a management problem. The, 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 whoever's overseeing ADL management needs to say, no, we, we're going to build a culture that we close these things out after every shift. The next shift can start fresh. And I noticed our best nurses, the ones that had the best, like just you know, the best reviews and had the, lo the, the, um, the lowest staff turnover were the ones that did that. And the ones that had the highest staff turnover and it, it, was, it was reflected in the data. So I always say, you know, if you're an HR professional, the first thing you need to do, go to your, your head of clinical and say, let me see your nurse call data and see if there's a correlation because I bet you, I bet you there is. Um, going through real fast, you know, poor health, this is one that kind of shocks me. Again, everybody wants more benefits. I just don't think they want to pay for them because when you offer higher wage in lieu of benefits, they're going to take that higher wage every single time. Well, not every single time, but a lot. Um, and you can kind of see the rest. The other one I thought was interesting, I think there's probably some inherent data skewing in this one is the very first one is community saying, yeah, people leave because they didn't like their responsibilities. 
that's probably true for some people, but I think by and large, I don't think uh, frontline workers don't like their job. Um, I, I, so there's a big disconnect there. James, I don't know if you have any other color input on these. Yeah, I, I think this is just kind of good compare and contrast to the first slide. Um, you know, but the overall points here are are you know the same the same as before. Um, mm -hmm. And and the thing I'll reiterate is go go find the data of your team at your community. And um, the the thing I like about research and finding that data is that it's it's the most objective place you can start from. Emotions are high right now. People are fatigued. People are angry. People are frustrated. Um, so we like everybody on this call and not on this call has an opportunity to influence their environment. You know, we can influence that from a position of we're pissed off and we're going to air out our grievances now, or, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to try to do something about this. And a starting point, anybody can take this torch. Anybody can take it on their team, but why not us? Why not, you know, you, the, the, the lifestyles force of our uh, industry lead that effort of, of just finding better information about what's going on on your team and have that as a starting point. So um, that's all I had to say about that uh, particular slide, Charles. Cool. Can I, can, can I add a quick thing here, Charles? Yeah. Now, I, I really love your point here because, I mean, to be honest, I knew about it, but I didn't know, I didn't know that, uh, that it was before and actually it was number one, right? And I think that's this idea of accountability, sorry. And uh, I mean, James, like you said, for me and a lot of people I know, it feels like January was a whole year by itself in terms of like, hmm. you know, pardon my English, but crap. It was, it was a very tough month considering the 18 last month we've had before. And there's a number of people like Renee at one point also talked about the fact that it was management's job to instill accountability. But what you, James, are saying is that we also, as activity professionals, can take the first step, right? That's your message here, correct? It is. And, and I think, you know, um, one, of, one of the points we made in, in our earlier um, webinar was that, like, for me, I still consider myself an activities professional. Um, I've mm -hmm. had a lot of roles since the technical role of life sales director. But I think the way I characterized it before is that uh, you just take on the clothing of the operator or the salesperson or whatever role you kind of grow into in senior living. But that was my mentality. I, I got into the role of activities and I realized this is the most important thing we do. And, and because there wasn't upward mobility within my organization from that department, the only other way to get there was I need to keep growing in you know, positions of influence. But at heart, I'm an activities director. And I, I truly believe that. And that was the advice I gave in the previous call conversation. And it's, it's the same one here is don't leave it to your regional directors or your HR directors, your VP of people operations to go do these surveys, um, get the data yourselves. And I, and I think that that kind of um, approach adds more credibility to anybody coming to the table with solutions. Yeah, thanks, thanks James. Um, I throw this up here, um, <clears throat> sort of as a point of discussion. So this is uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we took about almost about half our company to Cabo as like, our team had a big goal. Like we're going to like, they thought I was joking and I wasn't. And we ended up taking the Cabo. We had an absolute blast, but this picture, I love this picture because this is a really, for us is a great reflection of cares culture. I mean, we, we, it's kind of, we, we instill this sort of like rock and roll, like us against the world, um, you know, kind of in your face, bold, orange, obnoxious, um, culture and this is what we want and we set goals based on that and and you kind of work hard play hard live live or die whatever kind of you want to call it you really start going to the research you know, I think you know I think there, there are other cultures like let's take this and put it on a, on a ceiling community you can build it you know something very similar to this you get one that say hey we're gonna be very you know technology forward or we can one that's we're gonna be very professional very hospitality driven these are all these are all fine but when we start talking about frontline workers, understand, you know, the research that we have, they don't, this is not what they, this is not what they aspire to when they, when they think of culture. 
first and foremost, what they think of culture is a culture of respect. They see themselves, especially as we're going through COVID where, you know, um, we have a workforce shortage. They know they can work anywhere. They want to go not where they have the best culture, i.e. like something like this, but where they feel the most respected and honored for doing what they do. And at the same time, being compensated for it. Um, you know, and so again, they know that they can go work. Um, they know they can go work down the street for a dollar more an hour. Unfortunately, we're gonna have to keep up with, with that. There's just, there's not a lot of ways around it. Um, I, I think Charles, uh, I mean, Charles froze, but um, yeah. I'm not sure the exact point he was trying to make, uh, but I think to carry it forward here on this uh, culture slide, I think the point Charles was trying to make was that, um, you know, what, going back to the larger study, our study was challenging perception and it was challenging what do one group of people in our, in our organizations think, that's the upper management, and what do people at the ground level feel? So um, to, Charles has this kind of point about um, culture is kind of overemphasized or misunderstood. And, and the thing that I'll maybe agree to as part of that, oh, did, we, we lost Charles. Um, the, yeah. The, the, yeah, the thing that I'll agree to as part of that is, um, you know, culture is, I think oftentimes we think that culture is top down. And I, I really do understand why it can feel that way. I've, I've, I've been in a lot of situations where I felt frustrated and just exacerbated, exasperated and felt like there's nothing I can really do about it. Um, but this is the group here, you know, this, this audience, these are the, these are the culture warriors. I, I saw in the chat group, uh, a lot of people kind of um, superficially refer to it as the fun girls or the fun people. Um, but if, if we are all about fun, that also means culture. That also means um, let's go lead the studies on culture. What does it look like at our team? What does it look like for us? And if you want um, to influence change internally within your organization, you define what life enrichment is. I think I saw that question pop up. It's like, how, how do you define life enrichment? Well, it's defined however you see it for your group of people. So um, I think Charles is hopping back on here. Um, but I also yeah. know we're kind of wrapping up on our time here. Original Charles, we got eight minutes uh, left. So, <laughs> however you want to kind yeah, of direct us to a summary. No, that's fine. There, there is a question I do want to ask before the end to actually both of you, Charles. Thanks for joining back. You know, obviously this is a great uh, state of where we stand mm -hmm. and what your data shows, and obviously, hopefully things are going to improve. But I'd love to hear from you both. What kind of innovation are you seeing? You know, Charles, I'd love you to spend a little bit more time explaining what care is uh, also. And so anything that you feel is quote unquote innovative or that you'd like to see these days would be a, that would be a great way to kind of sum it up a little bit. So if I understand your question, sorry, like most embarrassing thing ever, your internet just goes down. <laughs> um, but so you're asking the question of like, what innovations that we have um, to possibly improve some of this, right? Great, what do you see working right now? Yeah, I, I look, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about care and what we do. And because again, we have tens of thousands of people working on our platform and the data we can get from that is that, um, we see a lot of we, we see a lot of evidence of I would say less than optimal behavior by by communities. Uh, uh, what one of like I, I one of the slides we don't have to show it, but you know is is you actually have um, we actually we, like yeah, okay let's so this is the kind of data these are two shift posts. Basically, what happens with care is uh, we pre vetted you know, pre qualified drug background check tens of thousands of people to work on our platform. And a community says, hey, I can't fill an open shift. The community sets the pay rate. We don't set the pay rate. Um, and so you, you decide how much you want to pay a caregiver. And then, you know, I can apply and James can apply. And you see my five-star rating and James's five-star rating. You pick James because why wouldn't you? Um, but you get, you know, and then, and then the hero gets paid the next business day as long as they get a four or five-star rating. So it's very, you know, they're, they're reinforced. They, they get compensated for doing better work. 
but we we also we also do sort of a lot of meta analysis on stuff like this, right? This says, okay, these are two different shift postings. I won't, I mean, this is literally it took me five five seconds to do. Like I clicked on one building, clicked on another building. Look at the shift descriptions. One is, hey, this is what we expected you, and this is the attitude we expect you to have, right? And then we'll honor you once you come, you're part of our team, you're not separate. The other one is ADLs. Now, if you were a frontline caregiver, which one do you want to work for, right? Um, I think there's a lot of tonality of, of just how you correspond. Like, I don't know if you guys use Orange Shift or Smart Links or whatever, do staff scheduling, how you do messaging. How do you, I mean, look at that, you have the data, you actually have a lot of more, we're all text-based now. How do you honor caregivers? Um, and, and just look, you just start auditing how people talk to each other. And that's what we do. And we find out like, I, I, I uh, wage agnostic, you know, I'm gonna work for the one on the left, not the one on the right. Um, that that is you know a big way of doing it. And then of course, you know, we always talk about wages and things like that. That's a whole nother conversation, which we have a lot of macro data on. But um, I would honestly look at you, you already have EHR systems, you already have written communications. I would just audit that stuff and see how people are communicating. James, any last thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, um, going back to the continuation of this thought that I, I I consider myself an activities professional and I've grown into other roles with an ulterior motive to, to make what I learned about senior living in that role 13, 14 years ago. I've, I've taken that with me to every role. I hope others would believe this um, that have worked with me. I've taken that spirit and just added it to whatever role I've been in. And so today I, I, you know, I'm able to be the head of an organization we just started and now we get to test all of that. And so you asked about innovation and here's my answer to that data. We think data belongs to operators or salespeople or whoever. It doesn't. It belongs to whoever collects the data. And so one of the yeah. theories that I have is, or, or we all hold to be true, is that the social determinants of health are as important, if not more, than ADLs. And I think French Charles, original Charles, you made <laughs> that point sometime before as well. Um, I believe yeah. that to be true. I'm going to prove it with data through our company. So um, how we track our activities, what we, what we even categorize as activities, we're educating our customers about it. And then we're collecting data to compare against other people who, who aren't collecting that data. So um, I could really chase that into a rabbit hole, but the succinct way to say this is, data is not for the business owners in the suits. The data is for whoever needs it to get their mission accomplished. So if your mission in yeah. your heart is that activities is the heartbeat of, of, of any senior living community, you know, get, get, get the weapons to, to get your job done. Yeah, I uh, thank you so much, James, for remembering remembering that. Yeah, we we uh, we we definitely believe wholeheartedly that engagement is as important, sometimes more important than medicine. So thanks thanks for the reminder there. You know, my uh, my quick thought again that I really like about your presentation and your data is basically the fact that all of this is a conversation, right? Like a lot of what you've highlighted in your presentation today is the disconnect, unfortunate disconnect between the operator the frontline people, people that leave, people that stay, and so on and so on. But what I do like about your work here is also the message of empowerment, right? Basically, there is a difference. It can be solved. It can be fixed. And James, and both you also, Charles, you know, providing tools and explaining how this could be done. And obviously, one of them is data, and one of them is the side of empowerment. So, you know, I do want to thank you both again for... Um, for participating in today's, I mean, actually presenting, uh, participating, like actually helping us build this amazing uh, webinar and experience. Um, all of you on the audience, thank you so much for joining again. You know, these are the contacts of Charles and James. Please feel free to, uh, to, to ask them more details about uh, their the study and their work with the idea that um, both of them have very tangible tools that can help us go further. And some, actually one of them is this um, uh, tip sheet that they help us put together. So James, Charles, thank you so much again for joining. Uh, awesome presentation, very valuable, very timely. And, uh, and yeah, so just as a sum, you know, quick uh, 
announcement, I said that cool and exciting things were happening in Texas. Um, I actually have one of them and <laughs> one here, which is that there is a uh, frontier management community that has an amazing activity director who goes by the name of Edward. And Edward on March 9th has decided with a former NFL player and their residents to put up a fashion show on the idea that beauty does not go away with age and sometimes quite the opposite. So all of the information about that particular event, again, March 9th at 2 p.m. Central, is going to be available on our Activity Strong Facebook group. And as a reminder, we recently revamped our whole Activity Strong webpage so you can find all the information about upcoming events. And I do want to highlight this big half-day event we have coming up in two weeks, all about validation, all about dementia and memory care. And um, excited to partner with an organization called the Validation Training Institute. With that, James, Charles, thanks again. Um, feel free to always be welcome on these webinars. And in the meantime, be well and uh, wishing you an amazing day. Thanks for listening to the Activity Strong Executive Edition series powered by Linked Senior. Find more resources and webinar information at btgvoice.com.